please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not try to stop him, because no one who does a miracle in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. Amen, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall into sin, it would be better for him if he were thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around his neck. If your hand causes you to fall into sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to fall into sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to fall into sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is the church's one foundation, the church's one and only head. The verses before us present some of the most difficult verses in all of Mark's gospel. They're, they're so enigmatic, they're so mysterious, and at least for me, upon first reading it, it seems kind of like a patchwork of all sorts of random events and thoughts that, that there's nothing unifying it. It's proven for me this week to be one of the more difficult sermon or texts to, to write a sermon on. I mean, just think about it. So you have this, this anonymous, no-name exorcist who's driving out demons. Then you have these two situations where the better option would be to, first of all, have a millstone hung around your neck and be tossed into the bottom of the sea, And then secondly, the better option is to hack off your hand or your foot or gouge out your eye. That seems like a very uh, violent thing. How can that be better than anything? Then you have Jesus three times giving that horrifying definition of hell, where their worm does not die, where the fire will never be quenched, which throws out the window any idea that anyone may have that hell is not real and that people will not actually go there. And then you have that, that weird talk about, that weird illustration of salt and fire. Is this just a disjointed patchwork? Did, was Mark kind of sloppily putting this together, just various details from Jesus' ministry? Well, if it was, if it was just Mark writing this, that's possible, but the, the Holy Spirit is really the one inspired, inspiring Mark, and the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything sloppily. So what ties it all together? Now, again, this was a difficult sermon to write, and and it's probably, it isn't the perfect sermon on this text, but I think one thought that ties all these various parts together 
are Jesus' very last words. Be at peace with one another. And what is he talking about there? Well, remember the context. Last week, the disciples were arguing with each other over who was the greatest. And then today, we have the apostles saying, hey, those guys over there, they shouldn't be preaching the gospel. They shouldn't be driving out demons. That's, that's our job. And so I think what Jesus is talking about is being at peace in the visible church, in the church as we see it here on earth, as, as messy as it is. And there's no denying that the church on earth is messy, right? That's one of the reasons that so many people are turned off by Christianity is that they see a church on every corner, they see different denominations, they see different worship styles, and, and I think to the, to the view of many people, it seems like all of these different denominations, all of these different churches, all of these different worship styles, they're all at war with each other. None of them are getting along. And I think they're right. Ever since the days of Martin Luther, the Catholic Church has pronounced a curse on everyone who believes that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you believe that, you fall under the official curse of the Roman Catholic Church. As a result, we Lutherans, ever since Luther's day, have identified the Roman Catholic papacy as the Antichrist. There are liberal churches in our world and in our country and in our own county that mock conservative churches for their antiquated and uh, out of touch with with the 21st century views on gender and marriage and sexuality and the inerrancy of Scripture and, and what the sacraments actually are. In turn, conservative churches criticize those liberal churches for failing to hold on to the, the one truth of God that he has passed down for us to preach and to teach. Even within Lutheranism, there are divides and there are conflicts. There's no debating it. The, the church on earth, the visible church, is a mess. But the Bible tells us that it has to be that way. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I see that there are divisions among you and that it has to be that way so that those of you who are true, those of you who are genuine, may be proven to be true and genuine. So there is a role for Christians. There is a time for Christians to be intolerant of other Christians. There is a reason, a God-given reason, for there to be divisions in the church. The question is, where's the line? Where's the line between intolerance that is sinful and intolerance that is biblical? Well, John brings up an example of what we might call sinful intolerance. He and the other apostles had tried to shut down a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Now, why do you think they would try to do that? Well, it, it wasn't based on the principle that James laid down. It wasn't because this man was preaching a, a false gospel or that he was opposing Christ or that he was trying to use Jesus' name and the, the, the miracle of driving out demons to enrich himself or, or to harm people. He was doing good. He was proclaiming the name of Jesus. He was casting out demons. Those are good things. Those are good, godly things. So why would John and the other apostles try to shut him down? Well, the only reason John gives is because he's not following us. They didn't judge this man based on what he taught or what he practiced, but rather on who he was, or rather who he wasn't. 
who he wasn't was a member of this inner group of, of 12 apostles. And that's why they judged him. That's why they wanted to shut him down. To borrow the title of a movie that I have never seen, but I'm sure many of you, especially ladies, have, they were guilty of basic pride and prejudice. They were proud. Now, earlier in this chapter, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration and shown him their glory, his glory. And uh, they came down, and now, in their minds, Jesus is, is bringing his, his, his inner circle, the, the 12 apostles, he's going to march into Jerusalem where he's going to inaugurate his reign of glory, and they will be right there with them, with him. And, and so, I guess, you see the pride in that. They don't want anyone stealing their thunder. They don't want anyone else to, to steal the glory that they think should belong only to them. And, and where you have that kind of pride... Well, prejudice isn't far behind, right? Prejudice is, is judging someone uh, without evidence. Not, not judging them based on what they say or what they have done, but rather on some other artificial reason. And, and they were judging him. They were judging that just because he wasn't part of their group, he must have stood against Jesus. That's prejudice. Pride and prejudice, that's, that's what they had against this man. That's why they wanted to shut him down. Here's Jesus' response to that pride and prejudice. Do not try to stop him, because no one who does a miracle in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. Amen, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. So Jesus makes it clear, there is a line. There are those who are against Jesus, and there are those who, for, who are for him. And there, there's no middle ground there. But what Jesus is trying to get his disciples and us to understand is among his apostles wasn't the only place that God was working. He, he's, his word is across the world. The Holy Spirit can work anywhere he wants to. And that's important for us to keep in mind too. This little piece of ground, this little church here, Risen Savior in McFarland, this is not the only place that God is active working. The Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod is not the only place where the name of Jesus is proclaimed so that sinners may come to faith and be saved. We shouldn't think that way. We shouldn't think that Jesus is our private, personal possession. We can't place a copyright on the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, Jesus says, if anyone gives you a cup of water in my name, they are doing a good work. And so he's showing them, God is at work all over the place. We don't have a monopoly on the work of God. Um, why would they want to shut down someone who is driving out demons? Isn't that what Jesus had just sent out his apostles to do uh, just a few months earlier? He sent them out to tear down the kingdom of Satan by, by casting out demons from, from poor, uh, imprisoned people. That's, that's the work of the gospel. That's a good thing. They shouldn't have stood against that. And there are two things that prove that this was a genuine believer that, that they shouldn't have been opposing, that this was a Christian even though he wasn't a part of their group. The two things are this, that he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, I was reading this week that uh, there were Jewish exorcists at the time, and, and they obviously wouldn't cast out demons in Jesus' name. They would cast out demons in Solomon's name or Abraham's name. But this man was doing it in Jesus' name as proof that he was a believer. And the second proof is that it worked. You know, Jesus' name is thrown around all over the place in our world. But when unbelievers use it, it's not like a magic charm. Uh, when they use it in vain, 
God doesn't hear them or answer them, but God did hear and answer this man's pleas to cast out demons from these poor people. And that's proof that, that he was a genuine believer. The other side of that is that unbelievers can't use Jesus' name to accomplish anything. In Acts chapter 19, there were seven exorcists named the sons of Sceva. And they all tried to cast a demon out of a man. And you know what happened when they tried to do that? The, the demon-possessed man beat them up, stripped them naked, and sent them running out of the house. So if a demon is actually cast out, that is proof that they come from God. This man was a Christian. They shouldn't have been opposing him at all. They shouldn't have, shouldn't have been trying to shut him down. And the lesson for us is that if there are others out there who maybe don't bear the name Lutheran, who maybe don't even know what a Lutheran is, but are proclaiming the pure gospel of Christ, we are not to oppose them. We're not to shut them down because we are prideful or prejudiced against them. Instead, like Moses, we should say, give thanks to God. We wish everyone could proclaim the gospel of Christ so that more and more people would be saved. That's, that's the sinful kind of intolerance that we should not have. But at the same time, there is a kind of righteous, biblical intolerance that we should have. I think Jesus addresses that in these verses too. At the very end, he talks about believers and he calls them salt. So the, the key thing about salt is that salt will always have an effect. If you put it on your food, it will flavor it. It will season it. If, if, you, if you put it in a glass of water, you'll have salt water. Salt always has an effect. And in biblical terms, the two effects that salt has most often are it, it's purifying. It's refining. It purges out anything that is bad or wicked or evil. And then on the other hand, it preserves, right? Just like salt can be used to preserve meat. So, so believers, as the salt of the world, are both to purge out whatever is evil, whatever is contrary to the word of God, and to preserve what is true. Those are the two functions that the Lord has given to his church and to individual believers here on earth. And there is a time for us to be purging, to be purified, to be intolerant. And one of those places is, as Jesus says, anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall into sin, we should be intolerant of them. Anyone who causes a believer to fall into sin, anyone who teaches falsely is leading them into unbelief, and we are not to tolerate that, not even a little bit. And that's not just a Lutheran principle. It's a command from God himself. In Romans, Paul says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching that you learned. Keep away from them. The Apostle John adds, If someone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not even wish him well. God calls us to oppose anyone and everyone who teaches contrary to his word. We cannot join with them. We cannot do what so many churches in our world have done and say, well, let's agree to disagree. Even though we don't agree on some of the most basic principles of Scripture, let's just agree to disagree because we all want to be friends. We must not do that. God doesn't allow us to do that. Instead, we must, as salt, purge it. Purify it. Whether it's in our own little body of believers here or in our wider church body, our synod, we must purge that out. We must oppose it and expose it. 
But there's something we have to do before we climb up on our high horse of orthodoxy and go around pointing at all the false teachers there are in this world and being intolerant of them. And that thing we have to do first is look in the mirror. We have to look in the mirror first. Like James said, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. We have to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word before we ever attempt to judge anyone else. Here Jesus uses the example of looking at your hands and your feet and your eyes in the mirror of God's law. And what do you see when you look into the mirror? Well, I see hands that are all too eager to serve myself, but are very reluctant to serve others. I see hands that are quick to point out the flaws and the sins of other people, but when it comes to my own flaws, I'm very good at downplaying them and minimizing them. I see feet that don't want to walk in the ways of God, but in the way I want to go. Feet that are all too energetic when it comes to working to make money or going out and having fun, going out and recreating, but these feet that have to be dragged into God's house for worship and Bible study, they come only reluctantly. I I look in the mirror of God's law and I see these eyes that are always lusting and coveting after things that God hasn't given me that are 2020 when it comes to finding the problems in other people's lives, but seem strangely blind when it comes to seeing the problems in my own life. What does Jesus say that we are to do with these hands and feet and eyes? Cut them off. He's very blunt. Cut them off. Gouge them out. That's striking language. That's violent language. That's gruesome language. What does Jesus mean by using this language? Is he being literal? Should most of us, probably all of us, be walking around with just one hand and one foot and one eye because none of us is exempt from sinning using those gifts that God has given us? Well, draw it out to its logical conclusion, if that were the case. If you cut off your hand because it caused you to sin or your foot or gouged out your eye, what would you still be able to do? use the other one to commit the very same sins. Okay, well, let's cut off both of them then. Cut off both hands, both feet, gouge out both eyes. Does that solve the problem? Of course not. Because the problem isn't your hands or your eyes or your feet at all. It's your heart. You may not have hands or eyes or feet to be able to actually commit a sin, but you still have a filthy heart beating in your chest that wants to sin, and that's the real problem. And a little bit of drastic surgery can't really fix that. We need something more. We need a heart transplant. We need a new heart, a believing heart, a repentant heart, a heart that will control these hands and feet and eyes in a way that God wants us to, not in a way that we want them to. So how does that happen? How do we get a new heart? That takes God going to work. God is the only surgeon who can give us a new heart. And he did it by taking hands that had never hit anyone in anger. He he did it by taking feet that had never wandered away from God's will. He did it by taking eyes that had never lusted or coveted anything and making those perfect hands, feet, and eyes 
bear the burden of punishment in hell, where the worm does not die and the fire does not end. By nailing the perfect hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the cross, by plunging a Roman spear through his heart, God has done the surgery that we really needed. He has cut out our heart of stone, our unbelieving, disobedient heart, and replaced it with a heart of flesh, a heart that is repentant and trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. And Because God has done that, you are healed. You are forgiven right now. That's why you can do something that a lot of people in our world, probably a lot of your friends think is absolutely ridiculous. You come here and you confess your sins publicly. You tell the whole world, I am a filthy sinner and the only thing I deserve on my own is eternal death and hell. That's what Jesus is really talking about here with cutting off your hands and cutting off your feet and gouging out your eyes. It's not doing it literally because that doesn't fix the problem. It is, it is taking the sins that you've committed with those hands and feet and eyes and cutting them off and laying them here at the foot of Jesus' cross where they can be purged from you, purified. And you are. You are pure. You have been purged of sin by the absolution. You came here and you pleaded for God's mercy, right? Right after we confessed our sins, God have mercy on us. And he gave you that mercy in Jesus Christ. So now those sins that you've committed with your hands and your feet and your eyes, even the ones that you can't forget and never will forget, God has forgotten them. Those wounds that you've inflicted on others or maybe others have inflicted on you, Jesus bore those wounds in his body on the tree so that you may be healed. Those sins of habit that you struggle with, that you come here every Sunday confessing, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and yet every Sunday afternoon or Monday you find yourself doing the very same thing. Those sins that you can't overcome on your own, Jesus has overcome them and he will help you. He will give you the strength to overcome those sins of habit. And that all starts right now. It all starts right now. And the proof is the resurrection. You know, Jesus carried all of our sins to that tree and He carried them all into the grave. But when He rose, He didn't have any sin. There wasn't a sin in sight. You can leave here today knowing that you don't have a single sin on you. Not on your back, not on your record, not on your account, not on your conscience. You walk out those doors a totally free, purified person. Only when we're at that point, only when God's law has brought us to our knees in repentance, only when the gospel has lifted us up in faith to look to Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, that's when we're ready to do the intolerable thing of, of opposing and, and exposing false teachers in our world. That's the only place that we can come from and be genuine in opposing false teachers. And it's always important to keep in mind why we do it. Why, why oppose those who call themselves Christians and yet don't teach according to the Word of God? Well, it's not just because we think we're right and everyone else is wrong. Uh, we're all wrong in the eyes of God. And, and we're not measuring others according to our own you know, Lutheran standard of orthodoxy. The only comparison that we can have, the only judgment, basis for judgment we have is the Word of God. Now, the reason we do it, the reason we want to be salty Christians in this world is out of love. It's out of love for the Word of God. 
The Word of God that says don't add to this, don't subtract from it, don't twist it or contradict it in any way. We love this Word and we don't want anyone to hear anything but the pure Word of God. We do it out of love for those people who are being deceived, who are being unknowingly led on the path to hell. We want them to be shown the truth, to be shown the light. We do it for our own soul's sake too. We point out false teaching and false teachers in this world we, we divide ourselves from them. We get away, keep away from them because we want to be saved. And we know that only the pure gospel of Christ can lead to salvation. We do it out of love. We do it because that's what God has made us. He's made us salt. Salt can't help but have an impact on this world. It, it purifies. That's why they, they, when you're in the hospital and they give you one of those bags, those drips, that's saline, that's salt water. It's a, a purifying substance. And it's a preserving substance. We are to preserve the pure doctrine, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of the next generation, the sake of generations to come. That's what it means to be salt in this world. And, and when we are salt, then, then we will have peace with each other. Then there can be unity in the church when we find others who agree with us on what the Bible teaches and confesses. A few weeks ago, I was meeting with a woman who reminded me of an old joke regarding Christian denominations. I'm sure many of you have heard it. And each denomination has their own variation on it. Here's what I think is the Lutheran variation. So there was a, a busload of Christians who had died and, and now arrived at Heaven Gates for intake. Um, and Peter, Peter was away. He was leading another tour group, showing them around heaven. So Jesus stepped up and he said, I'll, I'll show this group around heaven. And so he's showing them. He's walking up and down hallways. And there are, there are doors on all of these hallways. And above the doors are, are signs listing the denomination of the people inside. So you have the, the Baptist wing and you have the the Orthodox wing and the Catholic wing and the, the non-denominational wing and, and the fundamentalist wing. And, and then he comes to the end of the hall and, and there's another one last door there and, and there's a sign above it and it says Lutheran on the door. And, and Jesus turns to the, the tour group and he says, be very quiet. And they're why? Well, you see these Lutherans, they think they're the only ones here and we don't want to... We don't want to dissuade them of thinking that. Now, I know, I know that's what many other Christians think, that we Lutherans think and teach and believe. But we don't. That is not what we teach and that is not what we believe. As I tell my confirmation class, if I ever hear any of you say that Pastor Yankee said only Lutherans are going to heaven, I'm going to find you wherever you are. I'm going to hunt you down and correct you. That is not what we believe. But it is tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to be like John and take on this us-versus-them kind of a view of the church in this world. That, that we Lutherans are right and everyone else is wrong. Now, there is a time to be intolerant. We do not tolerate false teaching. We, don't, we can't tolerate those who lead the Lord's little ones, whether they're young or old, into sin, to fall away from the faith. We cannot do that. But neither can we be intolerant of others just because they aren't one of us. This is not about us versus them. This is not about who's with us. This is about who's with Jesus, who's following Jesus, who's proclaiming his word purely. Those are the people we want to join with. Those are the people we want to be united with. 
Jesus said, whoever is not against us is for us. And so that line, that line between sinful intolerance and biblical intolerance, you know what that line is? It's Jesus and it's his word. Whoever is not against Jesus and his word is for us and with us and united with us. And and even though there will continue to be divisions in this world, as long as this world lasts, one day in heaven, there won't be doors with, with different denominational signs on it. There will just be one Christian church in unity in Christ. We look forward to that day. But until then, let us follow Christ and him alone, and then we will be at peace with one another. In his name, amen.